Welcome to Your Partner in Success Radio, a program that values the potential of knowledge, collaboration, and growth. The show is hosted by Denise Griffiths, who is known as an intensely curious nerd in stilettos. Each Wednesday, she is joined by co-host Ben Gay III, a renowned figure in the sales world. Ben is recognized for introducing The Closers, one of the most popular and powerful sales training materials ever produced. Having been mentored by Dr. Napoleon Hill himself, Ben has gained a wealth of knowledge in sales and life. Throughout the show, Denise and Ben delve into the world of sales, entrepreneurship, and success, exploring Ben's vast experience from guiding and mentoring countless professionals to achieve unparalleled success in their careers. Together, they offer unmatched guidance to listeners seeking success in their professional endeavors. Welcome to the latest episodes of the Closers Inner Circle podcast with Ben Gay III and Denise Griffiths, that's me, and this is hosted by my normal podcaster partner in Success Radio. Ben very kindly came to me oh, months ago and said, what do you think about a co-host? Or he mentioned it on LinkedIn and I said, pick me, pick me. It's probably somewhere in the middle, but we decided to partner up and we show up every Wednesday and we have an interesting, fascinating conversation. This is where we unravel the complex dynamics between conditions and objections in the world of sales. And today we're taking a deep dive into the reality that even the most seasoned sales professionals can't close every deal. It's hard to stomach, I know, but you can't. There's just some moments when pushing for a sale is just, it's not only becomes a Herculean, (laughs) Herculean, (laughs) I'm good. I can do it. This not only becomes a Herculean. Say it for me, Ben. <laughs> you got me. You got me messed up now. I'm afraid <laughs> to try. It's a big task, but it's also <laughs> unwise. So Ben joins me each Wednesday, which I think I mentioned, and we discuss sales mastery and honestly, anything else that crosses our minds as we chat. And we study Ben's famous sales books. They're called sales bibles for a reason the closers. So join us each Wednesday, except this coming Wednesday, because it's the day before Thanksgiving and we won't be here, but we'll be here right after that. And we explore the delicate balance required to navigate conditions and handle objections effectively today. So this episode is a candid discussion. It's devoid of unnecessary embellishments, and it offers insights that could really reshape your approach to closing deals. So today, as I mentioned, we're working in the closers part two, page 101, and the chapter is titled Conditions Versus Objections. Good morning, Ben. Did I make any sense at all, or do we need to start over? Tell me we can just go. Yeah, I just am waiting again for you to try the name of the big guy, uh, Hercules. (laughs) (laughs) once i don't have to say it i can say it (laughs) anyway we're here yeah you made some sense yes and that's i want to congratulate you for that thank (laughs) you you are so good to me (laughs) you owe me five bucks now because you're being mean to me (laughs) so anyway so uh tell us what we're Listen, this book, these books, and I say this all the time, they really need to be part of your entrepreneurial library. And if you're listening to us or you listen to me on your Partner in Success Radio, I always say you need to have an entrepreneurial library. It's it's really imperative. You need to have, as Ben does, a stack of books here, there, and yonder. In my case, I've got hundreds of books in this room where I am, my office, hundreds of them. And every single book in here, including the closers, came to me via my guest. So I've read them. I review them in many cases. And I have a special shelf that these are the books that I'm constantly digging into. The closers is on that shelf. I appreciate that. And uh, reading is one of the common keys when you start studying successful people almost without exception, they're readers and they study it. And then people say, well, I don't have the time to read. Well, if I came to your home and office and followed you around, I'd show you about two hours a day that you have now that you're not doing anything productive with, least of all reading. You mentioned the stacks of books that I have. I've got books I've read that are in the bookcases in the office. 
And every time it gets to the point where I can't get another book in there, I have a house cleaning. I pull them out, uh, sort them out. Some go to the high school, local high school to the business class. Uh, some go to the library. Um, and uh, a few go to uh, uh, Goodwill or Goodwill type places. And uh, it breaks my heart, especially if it's one of my books, to see it for sale for 10 cents or 50 cents when I go back a week later. But uh, the that's that's how I make room for them. But here's what I do. Like you, Denise, you, you're in a position of power. You're in the catbird seat. People want you to read their books, so they send them to you. So they you do. Know, yeah, I get review copies. Uh, for some time, I've had as many as 10 or 12 in a day. It's unusual not to get one. I probably average two or three free books a day. And uh, I've, I scan them all, look through them, check the, the index and so on. And if it's of any interest, it goes into one of my five reading piles I have, uh, or stacks. Uh, I have one at each desk in my office. I have one in the car, uh, which is also masquerades as my briefcase. In other words, if I get in the car, I got stuff already there. And I've got stuff in the briefcase. And then I have one in my bathroom. Uh, I have my own private bathroom because Gigi doesn't want me in the nice one. So I have a little cubby <laughs> down the hall. And uh, But I have a stack in there and uh, a stack beside the bed. Probably 50, 60 books at any given time within arm's reach. I read off the top. Also with the stack is a highlighter pen, yellow highlighter pen, a regular ballpoint pen, uh, and uh, several of my Ben Gay bookmarks. So when I have occasion to lie down next to a stack or sit down next to one or whatever, I don't waste 10 seconds or five seconds deciding what to read. I'm in the top, the book on the top of the file the bookmark is in there and I have put a little uh, ballpoint pen mark just above the paragraph I have not yet read. In other words, well, I've read, read before. So, you know, I just sit down, pick it up, open up to the bookmark. There's the uh, mark, the ballpoint pen mark, and I'm reading within three seconds of having it in my hand. So one, you have to have things to read. Most people say they don't have, any, have time to read. The translation is they don't have anything to read they're interested in, or it's at the other end of the home or office uh, or whatever, where they don't have easy access to it. So I'm reading five books at all times. Uh, the uh, I've had been in one, two, three of the stacks this morning, and it's 1022. Uh, in the bathroom when I first woke up in bed and when I walked into the office uh, waiting for some program to come up, I picked up a book. I don't waste any time. I'm reading something. And I grew up, my mother always had Reader's Digest, the smaller version that was much nicer than what they put out today, had Reader's Digest stacked on the back of the toilet on the water cabinet. And when you came out of the bathroom, you were expected to report on what you just read. And if you, and that's one of the reasons most of my books have short chapters in them. I like to make it easy, not difficult, not painful to read and learn. And I call it Reader's Digest writing. Uh, if so I, I, pick up, I like that. I, you hadn't. I mean, I knew about the, your parents said, okay, what did you learn? Which I thought was wonderful parenting, but I didn't know that you were taking the length of your chapters from Reader's Digest, which I think is brilliant. Yeah, it's, well, it's just easier. My English teacher, Ms. Griffin, who got me to be, get serious about writing, said always write at a sixth grade level so you don't lose your readers. And she said, fortunately, Ben, that will be easy for you. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, I, I don't know if it was a compliment or an, an insult. I've, over the years, I've thought about it. But anyway, keep it simple. 
they shouldn't have to have somebody translate it uh, unless they're terribly uneducated. I don't think I've ever read a book where you have to go to a dictionary and look up what the word means. Uh, I try and write clearly and so on. And that's the type of thing I like to read. Uh, what's her name? The singer Barbara Streisand has a new book out. 950 pages, I think I read in the review. Fortunately, Vanity Fair published sort of a condensation of it, which I've been reading. Uh, and it's, it's sort of interesting. I'm not a big Streisand fan, except for her voice, which is magnificent. But she, she can sing, but she can't talk to me. I don't like her. Yeah. But I love her singing voice. Neither, but she sure can sing. And uh, in reading this, uh, condensed version, Reader's Digest version in Vanity Fair, it was semi-interesting, but even that could have been cut by 90% and I wouldn't have missed anything. But you hand me a 900-page book and we're pretty much through with the conversation about reading. I want to get to it fast and quickly and simply and easily. Napoleon Hill wrote Think and Grow Rich, for which he's famous, and a bunch of books that they've found in his mystery desk yeah. after, after his death. I, I Listen, I'm going to say straight out of the top of my head, I'm very suspicious. <laughs> yeah, he's written more in death than he ever wrote in life. Seems to have. And it may be absolutely the truth, but it doesn't quite work with me for some reason. I'm, but then, you know, I'm, I tend to not believe everything I hear or see or read. So yeah. there it is. Well, when he worked for me, uh, I asked him, and we had a, a publishing, a printing publishing division for all of our stuff. And I said, have you got anything else you want to, uh, to produce or consider? You've got a publisher, and I've got a million-person sales force better, spread around the world who will publish it and push it and so on. He said, I've written pretty much everything that needs to be written. That was 53 years ago. When I know died, when and he the, died, right? So, and the only book I think that was published after that, and I could be wrong, was the one where he's talking about the devil, and that was hidden mm -hmm. because his wife didn't want it published until after her death. But I haven't heard of anything in between those those publishings. Have you? Well, well I, it's hard to say. He when he was working in my office, I had a big conference table. He had a seat on the end. He was always writing something, and uh, where they went, I don't know. They could have been oh. the letters to his mother, but I'm, I'm telling you, I said to him specifically, we will publish anything you have and promote it, which I thought he would have bit because that's how Think and Grow Rich became known to a new generation. It, in 1937, 39, it was published, had a little run. But this is before Amazon, little run really means little run. And then my business, one of my business partners, Morris Pickus, went to call on W. Clement Stone, Clem Stone with Combined Insurance one day. And back in those days, you would take a hostess gift. They didn't call it that, but it was, you know, like a bottle of wine when you're going to dinner. Something to give to the person you're calling on. And he went in a bookstore or the airport or somewhere and picked up Thinking Grow Rich, which he had never read, but he'd heard of it. He gave it to Clem Stone, who had never read it, but heard of it. Clem Stone took it home, uh, read it, demanded everybody at Combined Insurance, was, which over the years with a huge company and turnover was millions of people. Uh, you better not bump into Clem Stone in the hallway and not be conversant on Thinking Grow Rich. So that brought it back to life. But what I was saying to uh, Dr. Hill in my office that day was anything you got will bring to life. I had an organization bigger than combined insurance and we were, they were selling insurance. We were selling self-improvement and seminars and so on. So it was a perfect match. He didn't bite. He had, no, he said, I'm done. The reason I even brought up his name at all was, uh, we're talking about Reader's Digest things. Think and Grow Rich was twice very popular, has made a comeback in recent years. And uh, uh, but before that, he wrote what he considers his masterpiece, The Law of Success. Its problem was it was thick, came in, I forget how many volumes, I don't have a 
sound of it anymore, but it was like, you know, four copies of the New York phone directory. So it was heavy going, uh, much more serious and, and thoughtful than thinking grow rich. And I don't mean that as an insult to thinking grow rich. What I mean is reading the laws. I only know two people and I've been in this business, uh, self-improvement and so on for uh, 60 years. Uh, I only know two people who've read the law of success. Three, because Dr. Hill had to have read it while he was writing it. Uh, and then two other people that I'm currently familiar with who uh, are Napoleon Hill and self-improvement fanatics. And I, I've talked to them enough to believe they've read it. I never did. I used to, I've I scanned through it, but it was just too much. Think and Grow Rich, though, I have two copies right here on my desk. It's a normal-sized book uh, on the small side of a normal-sized book. And it's easygoing and uh, rereadable. So you try and make it uh, simple to understand. Give it to them in bite-sized pieces. And when we ship books, in, in, while I'm signing and dating them, I always check and make sure that we've included my business card, peel off the back, sticky business card on the front page, and that we have a bookmark in there. And on, with, if you order in the closures part one, the bookmark is at page 75, because uh, it's one of the more raucous chapters about psychological manipulation. And then in the closures part two, the bookmark is always at page 257, sales infiltration, which I, is the best thing I've ever written about selling. I think it's the best thing ever written about selling. So we try and make that easy. And then, as you know, the chapters are short, generally speaking. They're, it's a Reader's Digest book on how to get rich in selling. I'm repeating because I don't know yes. where to start and stop. Yeah. Uh, we were talking about Napoleon Hill, W. Clement Stone, how Think and Grow Rich came back from the dead. Uh, due to a partner of mine who, years before I met him, gave Clem Stone a copy of Thinking Grover Rich. He'd heard of it, but he'd never read it, and he brought it back to life. It was published in the late 30s, 37 or 39. I've seen two different dates, and uh, it, it had its little run, but it was dead in the water, and Dr. Hill was a trivia question. Morris Pickus oh. gave gave Clem Stone a, uh, a copy of it, and he loved it, made it required reading for everybody at Combined Insurance, and brought it back to life, and that's when it became one of the best sellers of all time. They used to say second only to the Bible. I don't know if that was true then or is true now, but it has sold millions of copies, and a big part of it versus the Law of Success, which no one has read, really read cover to cover, um, a big part of it was simplicity and shortened things. By the way, if you're reading Thinking Grow Rich, people spend, uh, I had an old friend who built his career on that book, Bob Proctor, he recently passed away. One of my regrets in life is when Bob Proctor and Dr. Napoleon Hill work, both worked for me at the same time. I didn't know of Proctor's fascination with him. So uh, I never introduced him, never brought them together. And I wish I had. They would have enjoyed each other. Both of them were dry. They never did them. actually meet one another, did they? Ever? No. no. That's what I thought. Uh, let me put it this way. Not to my knowledge, not mm. with hundreds of conversations with Proctor and thousands of conversations with Dr. Hill, neither one ever mentioned the other one. And as I said, I just didn't know that Proctor was so impressed with Thinking Grow Rich. But for those of you who spent lots of time studying it, trying to figure out the deep meaning of it, the you know, what's the secret? Dr. Hill told me on numerous occasions, one, no one seen, he said, he was disappointed. Nobody seems to recognize it was a sales training book. It wasn't designed. You told me this, and yeah. you mentioned that he said multiple times in the book, the, the overriding comment that he made was take action that's right he that's the deep secret everyone's looking for <laughs> take action so 
we can we can do that back now. I don't know how we got off on that versus conditions and objections, but objections everybody knows for some reason or other the customer is saying no. Uh, it may be no, I don't like that color. No, I don't. I can't afford that price, etc. But and the uh, favorite, of course, of everybody is I want to think it over. Uh, I want to think it over can be an objection. But if you're a smart salesperson and you've read sales infiltration in the closers part two, you knock that down before it ever came up. So shame on you if I want to think it over is a problem for you. But I want to think it over might be a condition. And a condition is different than an objection. They may want it very badly, but they have to think it over because there's a condition they won't tell you about. They don't have the money. Jim Rohn used to, if you can picture the way he used to talk, that, you know, I don't know. <laughs> you know, why does so and so happen? I don't know. Uh, he, he was fond of saying, it, 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 whatever it is, doesn't cost too much. You don't have the money. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's a condition. You don't have the money. Here's the good news. Sufficiently, uh, let's assume they want it. If you're trying to sell something to somebody who doesn't need it or want it and so on, again, shame on you. You should have found that out when you were qualifying them. Uh, not prejudging them, qualifying them, as we talked about recently. But here, here's the breakthrough. Sufficiently inspired, just about anyone can get just about any amount of money. It is amazing what you can do. September 15th, 1965, in Atlanta, Georgia, Jimmy Rucker and I drove into a building, Trust Company of Georgia building, at 1447 West Peachtree Street, to go to what turned out to be an opportunity meeting. I thought it was a job interview for Holiday Magic Cosmetics. The two of us showed up and another guy who became sort of famous, Zig Ziglar. So the three of us were in a very private opportunity meeting. What we didn't notice on the way into the building was there was a parking fee. And I really don't remember what it was. I'm thinking in today's money, probably $3, maybe in that day's money, 75 cents, whatever it was, it was the, exactly the amount of money we didn't have on us because we didn't have any money on us. And you had to go into the trust company of Georgia, be a client of theirs, get your ticket validated, and then the parking became free. I didn't at that time have an account at trust company of Georgia and no, no money to talk to them about. So there was no reason to go in, in there. On the way out of the parking garage, we come down to where you go up the ramp. Guy's standing there with his hand out in a booth. He obviously is looking for money or validated ticket. I pretended like I didn't see him. I looked off to the right. He was to my left, and we just drove past him like it didn't occur. Fortunately, he didn't have the wooden arm down. If he had, I don't know what we would have done. But anyway, on September 15th, we didn't have the money to join Holiday Magic. It was $91.41 to get a little sample package. Uh, and then in the opportunity meeting, they explained that that was fine. It got your foot in the door. But where you really ought to be is a uh, master distributor. That was $2,500, $2,500. I don't have parking money on me. And then what the goal was as quickly as possible become a general distributor, that was another $2,500. So uh, that was precisely $5,000, $50,000 in today's money that we didn't have to join the business. But by the time Bill Dempsey got through explaining the plan to me, to us, uh, I don't know Zig's situation at the time, but Rucker and I went from broke to we want in. We were sufficiently inspired. And about a week later, we walked back into that same building, carrying parking money this time, uh, with a cashier's check or a certified check for $5,000. We didn't have 50 cents a week before. We borrowed, liquidated, sold a car, did all sorts of things, but $5,000 because we were sufficiently inspired. So conditions, I don't have the money. I'm not qualified, 
Uh, I don't want to buy your tractor. I'm Amish. Uh, th those are conditions. Most of them can be overcome if you sufficiently inspire the people to do it. That includes I don't want to. I, I want to think it over, etc. I've told you this example before, but knocking it in advance is a big thing. As Jay Douglas said, which taught us, if you have a built-in objection, bring it up first and brag about it. Don't wait for the other shoe to drop. When I was doing sales training for the Rolls-Royce, Bentley, whatever else, distributorship, auto dealership in San Francisco, British Motors, their biggest objection with a uh, Rolls-Royce was the price. And I forget what it was then, but today the starter kits over three hundred thousand dollars. You know, I think that comes without seat covers or something. So what I taught them basically was, and I'll transfer it to today's money, to walk over to the prospect when they come in, hand them your business card and say, My name is so and so. What's your what's your name? Pleasure to meet you. Before we get started, I know you came in, you want to look at some beautiful cars. Let me tell you what a pleasure it is to meet you and people like you. It's one of my joys of working at British Motors. I get to work with people who have done so well in their life, they're in a position to invest $350,000 in an automobile. So before this transaction is over and as the years go on, I want to know how you did it and what the secrets of success are and so on. What you're trying to do is compliment and so on, make them feel good. But what you're really trying to do is watch their eye, their uh, irises in their eyes and see if they vomit a little bit in the back of their mouth when they hear that the car they come in to look at starts at $350,000 we might have a condition problem. They may want to uh, give it some time. They may have to think it over. They have to think it over because they don't have $3 to get the car out of the parking lot. They just came in because they've always wanted to see a Rolls Royce. That's a condition. Good, right. news on the, good news on the condition. Things change. My first, new, my first car I bought it at a neighbor's house. I saw they got a new one and the old one had moved out to the street. It was a 1936 Chrysler four-door sedan for $50. My next car was a 1950 or 51 uh, Mercury, Lincoln Mercury Company, uh, Mercury. For, I think it was $150. My And both of those transactions were private. No one else was involved or was there to treat me right or wrong. My next car was a new Volkswagen, $1,842. Now we're starting to have the 18,000 plus today. Now we're starting to move up the food chain a little bit. And the guy was very nice to me, delivered the car as promised and so on. But he treated me like you treat a kid who's 20, 21 years old or whatever I was. Uh, as uh, his, his father must be co-signing for this or something. He didn't look at me as part of his future. Two or three years later, I bought my first Cadillac, brand new Cadillac, a Sedan DeVille, uh, for $2,500. And uh, that sounds silly today, but that's what you can get a 1965 Cadillac for. It wasn't loaded up with every feature on earth, but it was a Cadillac. And uh, happy to have it. And that guy should have figured out that I was worth following because two or three years later, I began the process of buying, leasing, and giving away over 600 luxury cars. And about 300 of them went to one guy. We talked about him last time, Herc at Marin Bay Lincoln Mer Mercury. And the other half went to a guy when I moved up to the Sacramento area that somebody recommended to me. The guy who sold me even the Volkswagen, if he treated me like royalty, I would have remembered him and I'd figure out a way to do business with him. The guy who sold me the Cadillac should have known there's a future here. This is a condition today. Rucker and I bought it together. And then whoever had the best prospects that night, the opportunity meeting, drove it. 
And I told you that funny story. I was telling an older, wiser gentleman outside the hotel one day waiting for my car to come around. I had it that night. Uh, he said, how do you like that? And I said, oh, I love it. And we got Rucker one exactly like it, same. Everything is the same, so nobody feel jealous. Uh, and he said, <laughs> write down the license tag number. <laughs> you busted. <laughs> <laughs> he had caught our one-car, uh, two-car charade <laughs> and uh, so on. But the, the real point is I had a condition but I had a condition when I joined Holiday Magic. It was called Flat Broke, and I overcame it in a week with, in today's money, a $50,000 solution. Uh, I probably wasn't qualified and couldn't have bought the Cadillac if Rucker and I hadn't bought it together. And I don't think they he was either ignorant and or figured that he would never see us again or whatever. He didn't understand looking down the road and know that although it was a getting better condition, it was still a condition. I wonder if I could track him down today, how he would feel if he knew. I went on to buy 600 Cadillacs, Lincolns, Rolls Royces, uh, Stutz Bearcats, uh, and whatever else other people wanted to win. I used to say to people, tell me the Tell me what you want, and I'll tell you what you have to do to get it. So we were always setting up, and one guy wanted a Stutz Bearcat, that one that looks like it came out of the 30s. And uh, so I told him what he'd have to do to get it, and he won it, and we bought it. And I remember calling Herc and saying, Herc, I needed a bright orange Stutz Bearcat. And he said, I'm sorry, I thought you said a bright orange Stutz Bearcat. <laughs> I said, I did. Uh, Kay White won it, and I got to deliver it to him. So conditions are things that exist that really aren't an objection to your product or service. They're an objection to they have no money. They're in the wrong state. They're in the wrong religion. I don't need wrong religion, but they're in the wrong religion to buy your tractor because they don't use things like that. And... Uh, it's your job to dig down and find out which one it is and then figure out if this is going to be somebody you pursue now or is it somebody you put into your drip marketing system and stay in touch with birthday cards, Christmas cards, whatever cards uh, and uh, much as information so that when they think of a car, they always think of you because you're the best car guy, best car lady that they've ever encountered or experienced. Kirby Vacuum Cleaner, I have a uh, on and off again relationship with them. I don't mean good or bad. I just, they don't need me full time. They're doing fine. But I've worked with a lot of their people, a lot of their offices, and they have a, an attitude that's really interesting. They say no sales presentation is complete until you have the payment in your hand or the police have been called. <laughs> <laughs> I, so basically yeah, saying, don't I'm a I don't want you calling the police. <laughs> I, I want you happy that I'm there and not offended. And if you can't buy now, we'll figure that out together without threats or intimidation or anything else. Uh, because in many cases, a Kirby vacuum cleaner is expensive. I used to sell them many years ago. Expensive. Uh, they're good vacuum cleaners, perhaps a little too good. You, maybe not. You don't need one that good or that expensive. But uh, a condition is I don't have the money. My first Electrolux vacuum cleaner uh, that I brought home to use was an Electrolux vacuum cleaner that was my sample. It left the house every morning with me and my wife would use it occasionally <laughs> at night or on the weekends uh, because I couldn't afford it. That was a condition. I didn't have any objection to the product at all. It was excellent. So find out if it's a condition, find out if it's an objection. If it's an objection and you can solve it, honestly solve it. If it's a condition you may or may not be able to solve right now because it's usually priced, but stay in touch. Things will change. Somebody was, I read somewhere on the internet this morning, they were working with a person 
and they just will not buy a car. And I restrained myself. You and I had this call coming up, but my reaction really was, did they drive up in one? Answer, yes, of course. Uh, are they going to buy some in the future? Yes, of course. I think the average American has 15 cars in their lifetime or something like that. So they've bought before, they're driving one now, and they're going to buy more of them. And you can't sell them. It's you. It's not the car. It's you. I used to do that in seminars. It was a funny thing. I said, uh, President, somebody sent Lewis and Clark out to find out what they bought in the Louisiana Purchase and when they acquired the United States and defeated Mexico and got California and so on. Go find out what we got. And they would report back and tell whoever it was, Jefferson, Lincoln, somebody, here's what we now have. Well, I was sent out by Dr. Napoleon Hill and Earl Nightingale and lots of other people to find out what the problem in selling is. And I found out and I'm back to report to you. And they all look up and get their pens ready to write down. And I'd say, it's you. But it is. It, it really is. Listen, anytime I fluff a sale and it happens. Sure. And I know the moment I did it. I know. Yeah, I can yeah. tell. Is it sal salvageable? Probably. But not at that moment. Yeah. And is it worth the time it's going to take? Exactly. To you have to just kind of cool it down a bit. I'm looking at page 102 and we're talking about objections and conditions. And I wanted to kind of hark back to something you said earlier about situations. And in here you write, never forget, however, that situations will always change. The right. person who can't afford your product today or has no real need or want for it now will probably be in a different situation at some point in the future. And these unqualified prospects can also be wonderful sources of leads, qualified people who can afford your product. That happens to me a lot. So you say, well, you know, I don't really need a website now, but I know about four people who do. Great. Introduce me. Absolutely. The, uh, the, uh, the power of referrals. And it doesn't yes. have to be somebody who bought your product who tells other people what they bought. It can be people who like you because you sold the most important product, you. You. Second it's is your company. Third, is, which is also you for many of us. If I sell you on me, I also sold you on the closers and so on. But the product comes last. It's be become their go-to person. I know you are. You and I have talked about it privately. One of the great joys of being in my position with my experience and exposure over the years is people call me to ask about things that are not anywhere in my bailiwick, but they trust me. They know I have common sense and I have the magic Rolodex. Uh, I can, you can ask me a question. I go to the Rolodex, check out somebody and that reminds me of somebody or call the first person and they'll say no, but I know why you called me. So let me tell you what I do if I were in your position. And then they give me the second number. There's that thing that, that is proven to be true scientifically. People were talking about it long before. We're all in a world where we're six degrees of separation away from anyone else on the planet. Unless they're in the deepest, darkest jungle and have never had contact with the outside world. Um, we're six degrees six handshakes away from anybody. So, and whoever discovered them is one step, you know, now you're within four steps of them because somebody knows the one who discovered them. Uh, exactly. so, I have to tell you this story. This goes back a, a long ways. And I just remembered it while we were talking, but some years ago, you know, I've been a web developer for about 20 years. I, code in my sleep. I kid you not. I can build a website while I'm standing over the stove. I can see it in my head. It's already built. It's just the way my brain works. But some years ago, and I don't know if this lady is still around, but I was getting referral after referral from her. You know, I would, somebody would contact me on Facebook or go to my website and say, oh, listen, so-and-so said you're the best. Can we talk? Well, yeah. Who is so-and-so? <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> yeah. 
was. And this went on for a while. I mean, it wasn't, you know, every week, but a couple times a year, I would pick up a website client because of this woman and her referrals. And I finally couldn't stand it anymore. I wanted to know who she was, why she, how she knew me. She didn't. I was able to reach her by phone. And I said, listen, my name is Denise Griffith. She goes, oh, I just love you. I said, what? <laughs> who are you? <laughs> she said, I love the work you do. I've seen your work, but I really like how you show up on social media. You just seem like a really fun and interesting person. I went, okay. I, I was shocked. We had a lovely conversation and all I could do was say, well, thank you. She had no need to do that. She wasn't looking for anything from me. She was actually just delighted that I picked up the phone and contacted her. And so was I. Well, so those, you just never know where these referrals are coming from. I told you the story about Phil Gage, the gentleman who worked for Mass Mutual and helped me when my father died. Yes. Uh, but, but because I didn't know that they weren't doing business anymore. And uh, he just jumped right in and did all the stuff. I never, part I didn't tell, I just didn't dawn on me till now, I never bought anything from Phil Gage. In the meantime, I developed my guy in California. Phil was in Atlanta. And although I'd heard his name all my life, I I fell in with Michael P. Michael Hunt, who's been my financial advisor and insurance guy, uh, insurance guy since about 1967. But I talked about uh, Phil Gage in so many seminars and sold so much product for him. As I told you, he said he could have made the Million Dollar Club 50 times over with the referrals I sent him. You never know. Uh, you know, I was so impressed with his honesty, his dedication, his loyalty, etc., that he had to retire and then die before I quit. In fact, after he retired, he was saying, Ben, tell the story, but send them to so-and-so. Uh, his point being, he he wasn't doing that anymore, and I'd already sent him so much, he didn't need to do it anymore. So you never know, and you probably did something. She saw you on social media. Somebody else may have added to it by saying, you know, uh, who's really good or really funny or really nice or whatever, you don't know. You don't. And uh, so uh, be nice to everybody, be loyal to everybody, uh, be helpful to everybody, and what you hand out will come back. Now, a lot of people don't use that properly because they give up. They, they were nice to somebody on Tuesday, and they're not rich on Thursday. Uh, the, the thing which in and out comes back tenfold mentioned in the Bible didn't say from the same person or quickly. It said what you hand out comes back. And I've if, if it comes up in casual conversation, I'm always interested, but I've given up trying to track back to why somebody said I was always told to call you. You know, I might say, who in particular? Well, I don't remember. That's good. We'll drop the conversation. Somewhere in the past, five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, I did something for somebody that's paying off now. So you have to do it and be patient. I've told you one of my, I always use Dallas for some reason, because we used to do huge seminars in Dallas. Uh, but uh my my favorite line or variations of it is, Mr. Gay, you may not remember me, but 25 years ago in Dallas, six row yellow shirt on your left. And I and I kiddingly go, oh, yes, I'd never forget the shirt. But something happened in that session from the stage at a coffee break, overheard, whatever. Something happened in that session, and 25 years later, uh, here they are. So treat them all properly. I may have told you this story. Uh, a, a good friend of mine now, and his running buddy, who's also become a good friend. We have some investments together. I was asked to go by Merle Fraser, one of my mentors, to Jackson, Mississippi, to hold a meeting that he had set up that he couldn't go to. 
He said, Ben, there'll be about 500 people there, and I really hope you'll fill in for me. So Jimmy Rucker and I drove through a southern rainstorm, and you know what I mean by that. Oh, <laughs> to, yeah. To get you to cannot Jackson. clear the windshield wipers. Just pull over and wait it out. <laughs> yeah. It's a death-defying drive. We get there. I go down to the locker room or wherever it was in a basketball gym to get cleaned up and dried off, and Rucker comes down a few minutes later. And he said, I forget what he said, he or they, but it was something that tipped me off. It wasn't 500 people. And the chairs were set up on the uh, on the basketball court. That's what they were using. He said, we'll say that he said, uh, he's ready. And I said, he's ready? Yeah, there's one guy and 499 empty chairs. So I went up. I knew the presentation by memory had to do it that way. So I said, I asked permission. And then I said, okay, I'm going to do it the way I do it. If the other 499 people were here, uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, there's one or two guys sitting there by now. Uh, tonight is a special meeting. I'm Ben Gage and we'll distribute with holiday magic, et cetera, did the whole meeting, signed them up. I didn't gain money out of it, but told Merle Frazier, they were signed up, sent him the paperwork, et cetera. Years go by. That was in 65, 66. So about 20 years go by. We had a session we used to call advanced business training, $10,000 to be there for 10 days. And this is several years ago. So make that 40, 50, $60,000 to be there. And I get up, introduce, you know, hi, welcome. There's about 40 people in the room. And just as I started, this guy stood up and he said, uh, his, turned out his name was Nolan Bush. He said, uh, excuse me, you don't recognize me. I could tell by no eye contact, et cetera. But I'm Nolan Bush. And 20 years ago in Jackson, Mississippi, one night, uh, you drove for somebody else. Two people in the room gave you a full presentation, follow up, everything. And I never forgot that. So... Uh, the distributorship we were selling was $24,625.19, 10000 if it had already been paid in tuition. If if you went forward, you got to use that as part of the investment. So he still had 14000 so on to go. He handed me a cashier's check for $14,000 and, uh, and 25 cents or whatever. And uh, then he turned to the audience and said, I've seen him in a real life test. If he tells you he's going to do it, he's going to do it. So I'm really looking forward to the next 10 days to see what I just bought. He didn't know anything about the business other than I was running it. And it was 10,000 to spend 10 days and a total of 24,625.13. If he went forward, brought a cashier's check with him and handed it to me and then said, now tell me what I bought. That that took 20 years to come back, but that's fine. When you get that type of reaction, lots of others have come back, had already come back, and many more have come back since that time. And he was ready and you were there. Yeah. And yeah. And he knew, you know, people buy, I coined this phrase years ago, people buy from, from people they know like trust and with whom they feel safe and with nolan bush i fit all four of those categories i you know ben you know me well i'm almost never speechless but i'm kind of there now <laughs> i'll think of something sassy to say excuse me I'm, yeah i gotta write this in my diary <laughs> I'll think of something really sassy and snotty to say, but I'll have to email it to you. <laughs> At 11.03 a.m. Right. <laughs> I made Denise go silent for half a second. Wow. <laughs> but it's true. I mean, that's, and listen, these things do happen once you've made that kind of stand and you've taught somebody that you are a person of your word. When they're ready to find you, they will find you. Or they'll refer somebody to you, you know, or they'll talk you up, but they're not going to just go, oh, that was an interesting thing and forget all about you. It just doesn't happen that way. No, it doesn't. And uh, if you've qualified them, 
and you have a thing of value, et cetera. Here's a great closing example where we got almost 100% of everyone who, who was exposed to the system. We bought a DC3, excuse me, a DC6B. I don't know what the B means, but that's what it was. It was right before the DC-8 started, the jets started coming. This was a four-prop plane, had belonged to the Chicago White Sox, all first-class config configuration, and uh, uh, and it had a little private cabin, which some of the planes used to have. Uh, it's a seat, probably four people, closed off from the rest of the world. We put a vice president in charge of sales on that plane, and then the local distributors would talk people into getting on it too. Getting on it meant you came to California, toured the home office, um, and got really sold. E uh, sort of a super opportunity meeting. Here was the ticket to get on the plane. You had to have a cashier's check for $5,000 made out to yourself to get on the plane. You just showed it at the door and the uh, cabin attendant, I started to say stewardess, show my age, or the cabin attendant would let you on. And then during the flight, the good news with the prop plane is it took a while to fly across the country. During the flight, you would be invited up to the cabin to talk to our vice president of sales about why you should leave the check with us, <laughs> get your distributorship and so on. We treat them like royalty, flew them across the country, no cost at all, just show the check that you could endorse and give to us. We got over 50% endorsed the check getting on the plane. They'd never been treated like that before. And the rest of them, I think 100%, if we missed anybody, I don't recall. The other half would give the check on the way back on the plane back to their hometown. We treated them well. They were qualified or else they wouldn't have the check for $5,000 on them. If that had been Rucker and me, we wouldn't have been on the plane. <laughs> they, I don't think they would have taken 50 cents. But uh, we qualified them up front. We treated them like royalty. We answered all their questions. We took them behind the magic table, behind the curtain, let them see the way the cosmetics were really made and everything gave them the full deal. I think the total trip was three days, getting there, getting back, and probably a full day at the facility. And uh, that qualified them. Uh, it sold them. Uh, if, if they weren't sold on us when they got on the plane, they were, by the time they got off the plane, everybody was on their best behavior. It was virtually a perfect sales presentation. And today, when I'm doing sales presentations, in my mind, sort of like you designing websites while you're cooking, in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, different situation, different time, don't have a DC-6B. However, how can I take somebody through the experience and make them feel like that? Because that is a perfect sales presentation. Well, and you offered complete credibility, which is yep. also critical. Yep. You showed them precisely what they were going to, they could expect to operate. Yep. I mean, these days, you know, we have a lot of terrific copywriters around, a lot of them. And, you know, I, I admit that I have been, I've invested in some of that copywriting. Eh, lesson learned. But other times my gut goes, do it. And I listen to my gut. Yep. Yep. And your okay. gut winks. I and my God wings. <laughs> Listen, they're important. That's how I snagged you. You're a God wink. Yeah. <laughs> and vice versa. I've had probably five times a day something happens to me since you taught me that term and concept. So five times a day, I'm guessing probably more. I have a God wink. And I always think of you. But oh. I look up and I go, thank you, Lord. I got it. It yeah. didn't break. I didn't drop it. The phone call came in on time. I'm over COVID, you know, whatever. Uh, but uh, you made me aware of looking for them. And that's a, a big part of selling. Look for what's going on. Study their reactions. Study who they are, what their background is. As Bill Patrick, my boss at Holiday Magic, used to say, people are going to do what they've always done. 
So you need to figure out what they've always done. I've, I've done it for years. I've talked about it for years, but I've never actually done it. I probably should. When I build a sales organization, I always wish I could start out with a list of people who were Eagle Scouts in the girl in the Boy Scouts and whatever the equivalent is in the Girl Scouts. They were winners then. They're probably winners now. With few exceptions, they will continue to do what they've always done. I think you're absolutely correct on that. And the thing is, it, as salespeople, and I is one, I hate to admit it, but <laughs> you, you tell me that it's not a bad thing. But as salespeople selling our services or selling our products or even selling somebody else's services or products, I do a lot of that. Not necessarily as a referral because I think that people genuinely are looking for help and assistance. I may not be the one, but I'm like you with your Rolodex. I know somebody, and I'll certainly make the introduction. Well, you're the one that has to tell me when we're running out of time, but even I can read a clock. So tell them about your mentoring and your podcasting service. That is coming up. Thank you. I'm glad you remind me of it because it's getting so close. In fact, we were going to launch this week, but that's, as we say in the Deep South, that ain't happening, hon. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not going to be next week because of Thanksgiving. But right after that, listen, I don't do Good Friday. In fact, I wrote a post about it this morning on Facebook. So I'm not going to, you know, jump into the whole Good Friday frenzy. But right after that, pay attention. Because if you want to learn about how to be a terrific and highly sought after podcast guest or host, I can learn you. I can teach you <laughs> how I have done this over the last 15 years. And I'll be honest with you, you there to teach me a darn thing, even if I were teachable, which large, you know, by and large, I'm not. But it's something that I've been so passionate about. And I get to meet people from all over the world and get my voice heard. And apparently that was something that has always been very important to me. So my goal is to take people who are just starting or they're struggling or they're just like, I don't know what questions to ask. I'll answer your questions and I'll do my level best to help you. Do I want to sell you some, you know, courses? You bet, but not right away. I want you to get to know me, like me and trust me. And then we'll talk about how else I can help you. So just keep an eye out on your partner in success radio and Facebook. I'll be putting out some ads, but, it's coming. It's coming after Black Friday. And you would be well advised to join up with Denise. She is really something. She carries the Ben Gay, the third seal of approval, and she carries officially the National Association of Professional Salespeople seal of approval. And uh, we don't give that out casually. She is really something. If I were going to do a podcast on my own, I cheated and teamed up with Denise. If I were going to do one on my own, that would be my first phone call would be to Denise. So make it your next phone call. Thank you, Ben. You tricked me, actually. You got very sneaky on LinkedIn, and I had my hand going, pick me, pick me, because I knew <laughs> I was the best. <laughs> you had to pick me. Your if you had host. read sales infiltration at that point, you would have known. You would I have did. known what was happening. I did. <laughs> <laughs> I called you. So you could pick me, right? You know, yeah. like, like I had any real doubt. But I'm so glad that we're doing this together. And tell people very quickly where they can find you, where they can find the books, because these books, when I tell you, they are a cornerstone of my entrepreneurial library. I'm not joking. I'm dead serious about it. So tell people where they can find the books, stocking stuffers. It's time. It's time to start buying books for your colleagues, for, you know, people who want to know more about sales and your mentoring program. If you uh, don't have time to cover all of that, but if you need the books for yourself and or for your uh, friends, neighbors and relatives, uh, go to, here's the best place to get them, special pricing, free shipping. Go to stores, S-T-O-R-E-S dot eBay dot com forward slash Ronzoni Books, R-O-N-Z-O-N-E 
B-O-O-K-S. If you order before two o'clock Pacific time, they'll go out that day. They'll be signed, dated, and covered by our unconditional lifetime money-back guarantee. And next week, um, if you if you remember to ask me, we'll be covering, starting on page 85 of the closers, part two, they don't want your product. Five. Okay, but after that, I get to pick, and it's going to be Gigi's Plan A and Plan B interview. Excellent. Okay. Yes. <laughs> So and that, that was written, by the way, part of my clever marketing program before we were married. Um, really? And it was it was part of my scheme. Sales infiltration. She can't hate me if I recommend her in a book. And she's now your wife. If so anybody who wants to know who Gigi is and hasn't, you know, kind of caught on yet, she is his wife. And I think she's the boss of the house, but I'm not. She is. OK, good. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I figured she might be. Well, listen, thank you, everybody, for joining us. Be sure to check when we won't be here Thanksgiving week, but we will be back, you know, every week after that up until Christmas. Yeah, no, we're going all the way through Christmas. Um, and check out Ben's books. And thank you, everybody. We will see you next time. Ben, thank you so much. Thank you. Love you, dude. Right back at you.